the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, for our centenary with the Royal Australian Air Force, back to fighter world and another motivated interviewee. His name is Phil Frawley. Now, Phil is a human who was truly born to fly. As a young boy, he spent countless hours building model aeroplanes and dreaming of the day when he would get control of an aircraft. After five years as an aircraft technician, he was accepted into the Royal Australian Air Force 92 pilots course in July 1974. 49 and a half years later, he's retired from the RAAF. He's a pilot still flying. He's also a qualified low-level demonstration pilot. He also holds a civilian commercial pilot's license with a civilian level two flying instructor rating and he currently resides in the beautiful city of Newcastle and enjoys surfing the pristine beaches along the north coast of New South Wales. G'day Phil, how are you? Good, thanks mate. What's it like, according to the Guinness World Records, being the oldest active fighter pilot in history? It's good for the grandchildren, but uh, I think that's about as far as can stretch, really. I mean, it's not as if I'm the best or the worst. I'm just the oldest, so, yeah. That's got an EST (laughs) on the end of it, so I'd be happy with that. (laughs) You'd still take people on jet fighter flights in the Hunter? Yes, I do, yeah. There's an L-39. What kind of plane? L-39 Albatross, a Czechoslovakian-built lead-in fighter trainer. And uh, we do adventure flights out of Cessnock Airport. Do you own it? No, I don't. You lease it or hire it or... I just work for the owner, that's all. Oh. Yeah, so... So how do you get a flight? How do you buy a flight? Well, you just go online and uh, look up jetride.com.au and uh, you can contact them and get yourself a flight. Jetride.com.au. Yep. Jetride.com.au. If you want to go up with Phil, the oldest active fighter pilot in history, make a booking. Is it expensive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you join the Air Force, really? Well, my uh, stepfather was in the Air Force. He was doing pilot training when the war ended and he got demobbed. And he sort of kindled an interest in uh, flying. It just went on from there. I had an uncle who built model aeroplanes and he was an exceptional sort of encourager. And I just couldn't get away from aeroplanes. I built hundreds of model aeroplanes. What do you uh, mean, those balsa ones or the plastic ones? No, the plastic ones. The plastic ones. Airfix and Revel and all those and just loved it, absolutely loved it. Did you have any trouble with the little tube of glue that you were able to use? Because I used to build them too. Oh, yeah, well, you know... Put a fingerprint on the fuselage with <laughs> with glue. <laughs> yeah. The 92 pilots course, which was July of 1974, what was that course like? How did you get into it? And who were the people you met? So I suppose there are three questions in one. Well, when I was a technician here at Williamtown, I had to go to night school to get the required education standard. And I did two years in 12 months. So I got HS, my HSC and I applied for pilot training, which is what I'd always wanted to mm. do. But my stepfather said, become a technician first in case you don't pass pilot's course, which was very good advice. I got accepted for 91 pilot's course and then it was subsequently uh, cancelled and given to an academy course. And I thought, well, that was the end of it. And they told me that the 92 pilots course was only going to be a half course so I thought well I'm done but I got accepted onto 92 pilots course we had navy and we had Malaysians on the course as well Mm -hmm. I mean it was very very difficult 
for the first time, you had to do your own soul searching. So you were told what your faults were. You had to go away and find a way to fix those faults. It was incredibly hard work. I think I was the last one on course to go solo on the wind duel after about 13 hours. But once I achieved that and I sort of got you know, more confident in my ability, I sort of went on to be a reasonably high achiever on the course. Mm-hmm. Were you not part of an Im- apprentice intake? Yes, 23 intake goannas. I wasn't aware that the RAA have had apprentices. Is, is, how does yes. that work? Junior engineering apprentice training courses, GIAT, went on from uh, just after the Korean War, I right. believe. And I think they finished in 1984 or 1985. I was on the 23rd intake. There was 150 of us went down and... Uh, that was at Wagga? Yes. Yeah, at Wagga. Yeah, yeah, two and a half years at Wagga and then two and a half years to get your full trade uh, by working on aeroplanes. I came here to Williamtown. It was post that, here at Williamtown, that's when you decided for the pilot's course, 92 pilot's course. I was always going to do pilot training. I always wanted to. Yep. But, you know, I had to get my trade first and foremost to make sure I had something to fall back on should I not pass the course. Having done that course before the pilot's course, given what your stepfather had said, how did that improve or change your attitude towards being a pilot? How did it help you being a pilot? Uh, Well, I was an instrument fitter, so uh, that helped me enormously because I understood how the instruments worked and, you know, what they were saying, things like the artificial horizon, what errors you could expect in them. And so that was enormously helpful for me, particularly in the aptitude testing for pilot training. And in fact, the selection board asked me if it was an advantage and I said, yes, it was. And what were you flying in that 92 course? Flew windjills initially, yep. 65 hours on windjills and then on to Mackey's at Pierce, 110 hours. How did the windjill compare to the Mackey? Well, the windjill's a propeller aeroplane with a radial engine. I like to say it was the only aeroplane without an onboard computer with a mind of its own. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it, it was a beast. And, you know, for a young guy like me who'd been working on aeroplanes and, you know, been institutionalised into knowing that aeroplanes could kill you sort of thing, to then stand beside a windjill and say, they want me to fly this, it was very, very daunting, that's I, for sure. I can imagine. And what about the jump then from a prop to a jet? It was an amazing transformation to go from the propeller tail dragger aeroplane to a tricycle undercarriage and a jet where the rudder pedals, you use them to taxi and once you were airborne, you hardly ever touched them again. So whereas in the windjill, you're always dancing with your feet trying to keep it to go straight. What was, would you say were your biggest challenges as a learning pilot in either of those two aircraft? I wasn't academically brilliant, so I had to study a hell of a lot to stay on top of everything. I guess that would be the most difficult part of it was the amount of study required just for me personally to uh, get through the course. You mentioned the academic background. Mm. Do you think that the person who's an academic background has a better chance of being a pilot or is a pilot more, let's say, 70% flying by the seat of your pants, doing it innately as opposed to what you've learnt theoretically? It's a combination of academics and eye-hand coordination, you know, your ability to you know, use the stick and the and the throttle and the, mm. the rudder pedals, etc., is something that most people have to learn. You can't there's not many natural pilots. So you had to have eye hand coordination as well as be academically fairly good. World War One, planes, virtually two wings, paper and a propeller and mm. a 
joystick, there was no academic requirement there. It was really an innate ability, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's right. But, you know, as aircraft progressed, of course, their uh, complexity sort of increased. And so sure. came to the point where academics played an important part, particularly with navigation. I mean, you really had to be good at navigation because there was no GPS or anything like that. You sure. had to be able to read a map and interpret that to what was on the ground and be able to calculate time on target, etc. you know, how sure. you're going along in the navigation exercise. So, yeah, those, those kind of things. But also aerodynamics, you had to uh, understand and uh, work with aerodynamics. I'm hoping that innate ability has a lot to do with being able to actually take an aircraft in the right direction. Oh, yeah. It just comes back to eye-hand coordination. Sure. You know, sure. some people can do it. <clears throat> I remember when I was an instructor at Point Cook, they did, the psychologists there did a bunch of testing they called defence mechanism testing. The result of that was to find out who, who could fly aeroplanes and who couldn't to help them in the recruiting process. What they found out was that some people have the ability to think three-dimensionally and some people don't. And uh, it's a physiological thing and it all has to do with the interconnections between the left and right hemisphere of the brain. Really? The more interconnects you have between the left and right hemisphere of your brain, the better ability you have to think three-dimensionally. That's fascinating. My son's friend is in the Air Force, joined recently, and he's flying Herks. Mm. And he said he'd never want to fly anything else. He loves them. You spent, what, five years with five the Herks years. C-130s? Yeah, it was What was wonderful. that like? Wonderful. I mean, I came here to Williamtown off pilot's course, and uh, I didn't make it through uh, on the first attempt to get to fighters, and they sent me to C-130s. And uh, that was a really fun time. It was hard work, but, uh, yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. For a person who doesn't is not a pilot, someone listening to you, right now how would you explain the differences between flying a 130 and flying a mirage because you've done both yes well the c-130 was mostly a, an administration kind of thing so the airplane was similar to a Mackie in, in some respects in terms of its speeds and mm. performance etc and the cruise speeds etc but the challenge was to work with a crew and to go through the administration processes of loading and unloading the aeroplane, working out its weight, working out its centre of gravity, working out how much fuel, flight planning, all of that sort of thing. So a lot of coordination in flying those. But the other thing about flying the C-130 was the range of operations that we did, you know, search and rescue, fodder drops, yep. you know, airdrop, working with the SAS. There was such a variety of operations mm. that we did on the C-130. The best part about it, I picked up three brand new H-models from the uh, <sighs> from the factory. That was wonderful. <laughs> and they had plastic on the seats. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> how, how different is it flying a C-130 when you've got a full load to drop somewhere to troops as opposed to coming back with an empty load how, how does it change its pattern of flight oh massively you could carry two or three tons of uh, cargo on the airplane and you can imagine throwing that out the back the big change in uh, the aircraft's capability what is it case of oh, oh. oh yeah the cargo space was 41 feet long so i'd once dropped a uh, tractor and it accelerated from zero to 105 knots in 41 feet as it left the uh, cargo and I was flying the aeroplane and I needed full forward control column to stop the aeroplane you know rotating backwards sort of thing. You mentioned on the 130s the work, a notion of working with a team. Yes. To what extent does the RAAF provide you with a team support <clears throat> 
network that makes a jump from a pilot in a Mirage to a C-130 where you've got a team working with you? From my point of view, it doesn't matter if the team are with you on the aeroplane or they're part and parcel of what's happening on the ground as you jump into your Mirage. There's no difference. You work as a team. You make sure that the workplace environment is a pleasant place to be and that everybody's treated with respect. So the pilot in a Mirage is not the tip of the spear. The pilot in the Mirage is part of a bulk spear. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's the same today with the F-35. I mean, the, the massive effort by everybody in getting that, an F-35 into the airspace, it, it has to be that way. And, you know, to have a workplace environment that's pleasant and people wanting to come to work, that is the key to success in terms of how you generate air power. I can imagine the psychological difference of when you jumped out of, for five years, the C-130s, then spent the next X number of years in a Mirage, Mm. that jump from a big aircraft to a very small aircraft Mm. must have been a huge jump. It was a huge jump. But, you know, it was something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. I had my mind set on it and I was determined to get there. And I had a lot of good advice. A guy who was an air traffic controller, actually, and he said to me, mate, be the best that you possibly can on C-130 so they can't ignore you. And I worked very, very hard. I would like to think that I was very popular amongst the crews that I flew with and it worked out very very well. I had a lot of support again from the training flight commander in C-130s who basically wrote a report saying I was a waste of time on Herc so I needed to go to fighters. So. Did you have any hairy experiences in a C-130? Uh, no, uh, I had a couple of engine failures. I was in my earlier days we had a two engine out approach we were doing an engine air test one of the engines had been changed Mm. on the aeroplane and we shut it down which was part of the test you shut it down make sure that it feathered properly that it didn't rotate up to a certain speed etc but when we shut it down it started leaking fuel out of it so uh, we had to we were very very calm and collected because we were the air test crew and uh, we were declared a minor emergency and we we're coming back and then the engineer said we've got a fire warning on uh, number three and we it took us a little while so from a cool calm and collected air test crew we were, we were a very very excited and worried crew because we had to shut down two engines on the one side but uh, the captain did a great job when you're in a four prop plane and two on your starboard or two on your port go out what does the pilot do You need 105 pounds of pressure of full rudder into the good engines. You need five degrees angle of bank and full aileron trim into the good engines just to keep it going straight. Getting back into the Mirage, uh, that change from big (coughs) cockpit, small cockpit, group team, and you mentioned the team on the ground. So what was your first memory of that first flight in a Mirage like? My first solo in a Mirage was A33, which is here in Fighter World, and it was recorded, actually. I uh, got a few photographs of it. It was a big thrill, because up until that point, I'd just flown the, the two-seat Mirage, and I uh, had somebody in the back telling me about my incompetence. <laughs> to be sent solo in one was fantastic. I'll cross those years. I was, <clears throat> let me ask the same question. Were there some hairy experiences? Yeah, there was a lot of hairy experiences. Give me an example of some of those. I was doing uh, air-to-ground gunnery, so strafe in Butterworth. In Butterworth, the visibility wasn't always that great, and we had a new kid in the squadron. The rule was if you lost visual with a guy in front of you, descended 500 feet and then tried to get contact and then rejoined Mm. back into the uh, pattern. But this kid, instead of doing that, flew it exactly the same and went south of where we were, calling on the radio that he'd lost contact with the the lead and the lead said, I'm over this island, and he suddenly got contact and then did a hard turn 
flew past the nose of my aeroplane, I estimate about 15, 20 feet, and I lost control of my jet from 2,000 feet. I remember looking at the sea thinking, this is it, I'm done. Pulled back, went full afterburner to try and recover the aeroplane. Don't know how low I went, I was just waiting for impact. But it didn't happen, and managed to climb back up and get back into the pattern and just continue on. Yes, I can understand what you mean by some hairy experiences in the Mirage. What's your best experience in the Mirage? Just flying it. It was wonderful. It wasn't a very good dogfight. We had lots of great times doing uh, dogfighting. It wasn't a very good... But it didn't turn very well, that's didn't. all. So yeah. it took a long way to yeah. turn. Yeah, it had a big turn radius compared to other aeroplanes of the time, only because it was a Delta. Would I be <clears> right in assuming, therefore, that it wasn't a particularly good fighter aircraft per se? It was more a fighter long-range bomber? Well, the whole thing was designed to be an interceptor, to intercept um, Russian bear aircraft. That was its whole design right. criteria. We bought the aeroplane and uh, we decided to turn it into a jack-of-all-trades. So a dogfighter, an air-to-ground attack aircraft. And to our credit, our crews did a marvellous job of doing it. And from time to time when we fought other air forces, we did very well with it. So what does that say about our training in the RAAF? <clears throat> Second to none. Have you in your career flown with other Air Force? Yes, yeah, I flew in Saudi Arabia. I taught Singaporean students, PNG students. What are their pilots like? Well, the PNG guys, they were marvellous. They weren't going to go on to fighters or anything like that. They went back to fly DC-3s and Nomads and things like that, but they were lovely people, they really were. The Singaporean students that I had were just totally dedicated. They really were. They were really trying their best at all times and they were very very good it sounds to me like a lot of your career in teaching that has been a very positive part of your career the actual sharing your yeah loved it you know that was the one thing I found that I could do pretty well was to teach kids yeah I loved it what's the art or the skill or the trick in being a good teacher of aircraft of maths of science of whatever amateur psychologist (laughs) (laughs) the the thing about teaching flying you're doing it one-on-one with with a student so you had to be pretty quick to pick up on his psyche and and learn what made him motivated what what Mm. he what his way of learning something was so in that regard you had to pick up on his psyche very very quickly you know some kids if you had a softly softly approach they wouldn't learn a thing so you had to be hard and pretty cursed with them from time to time whereas other kids you know if you just encouraged them said mate you're doing good every student was different so being an amateur psychologist is pretty accurate yeah mirage mackies herks then hornets yep how would you rank them hornet was fantastic an amazing leap because we went from a second generation to a fourth generation, so we skipped a generation in aircraft. You know, my first few uh, missions in the Hornet <laughs> weren't that wonderful in the, on the tactic side of it, but uh, it was a fantastic aeroplane to fly. Why? It was a digital. In the Mirage, there was so many limits that you had to know that you couldn't exceed in the aeroplane 6.7G, and you had to be very, very careful of that. Engine limits, you couldn't accelerate the engine too hard from certain RPMs and things like that so you had to have these limits in the back Mm. of your mind even Mm. when you were fighting with the thing whereas in graduated to the f-18 and there were no limits (laughs) is it is it that good oh yeah yeah it was fantastic really was thoroughly enjoyed it 
So you put that at the top of the <clears throat> top of the tree. Oh yeah, in my experiences, yeah. What was your time with the Australian Defence Force Warfare Centre like? <laughs> I went there kicking and screaming, uh, thinking I'd been dudded, but uh, in fact it was a great experience. I learnt a lot about joint warfare, learnt a lot about cooperation with the other services because the instructors who we taught on these courses were Army and Navy as well as myself. And, you know, we went to a lot of colleges, you know, in Southeast Asia and uh, New Zealand and stuff like that, lecturing on uh, joint warfare um, and doctrine and things like that. And, uh, yeah, it was a very, very good experience. So what was it like working with other Defence Force? I mean, usually when a person's in the RAAF, that's their focus, the RAAF. Yeah, I think at that particular time, the whole of the Defence Force was starting to realise that the only way our Defence Force was going to be a major player around the world was to cooperate with each other. You know, we're a small force, but if we integrate ourselves very, very well, we can have a, a, a pretty big impact on anything that we, we try to do. And you'll find that even goes, goes today in that we don't care who the person is, if they're very good at their job, doesn't matter if they're army or navy or whatever, there are cultural differences in the way they approach their doctrine mm. for how they, they go about their operations. But for, for me and just about everybody I ever dealt with, it was a, an easy thing to do. So there's no feeling of preciousness of one... There's always banter in the bar, but, you know, that's about as far as it went, you know. I know that the RWF <coughs> is your background, but let's just take a, a what-if scenario, time of <coughs> war. We've got Army, we've got Navy, and we've got Air Force. How do you see the interrelationships working in a crisis across those defence forces? Someone's got to be in charge. How do you see it work, or how has it worked, or how should it work? I see it working very well based on my experiences because we've learnt that we have to cooperate with each other. And it wouldn't matter who was in charge of that operation. Uh, we would have faith in their ability because we've, we train together mm. a lot. We mm. do JTAC uh, training, we do uh, fleet support, all of those sorts of things. So we're working with these services all the time and we have a, between each other we all have a reasonable understanding of what each other's role is and an appreciation for how they fit into the overall operation that we may be trying to do. Mm. Yeah. Having spoken to a number of other people about their time in different parts of the world with flying with other air forces in different parts of the world, I'd be interested in your feeling as to which other air force internationally would you see us being most like and most easy to work with? Well, we've done a lot of work with the Americans, that's for sure. Um, they are quite easy to work with. I found them from time to time a little bit inflexible uh, in, in some respects. Mm. Hard to put a, a pinpoint on what that exactly was, but I always came away from with the feeling that, um, you know, though if they were a little bit more flexible, they, they'd probably be a fair bit more effective. Mm. Um, mm. The Singaporean Air Force was probably the most amazingly professional outfit. They're just just so uh, focused, you know, on what they do. They're like us. They're a very, very small force. They have to be uh, super professional uh, in what they do and very, very capable. Did you ever feel, I am part of the second oldest fighting air group in the world? Well, one of my secondary duties in 76 Squadron was unit history officer and uh, I worked with the RAF Museum 
Um, I flew the Fokker triplane for them and eventually the Sabre as well for the RAF Museum. So at an early age, I started to appreciate the history that we that had been formed mm. over many, many years. And uh, to this day, I'm still very, very interested in that history. Uh, I do public speaking on Southeast Asian and Pacific theatres of war, and mm. I, I watch a lot of uh, historical videos on that. Uh, so I lecture on Milne Bay and uh, a few of those other, the Battle for Australia, all of that. So mm. I'm very, very aware of the the history and you know as the cliche is if you don't listen to history you're bound to repeat you're it. You're bound to repeat it. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that that uh, the Australians who flew in England in the Sunderlands mm. uh, the longest serving any defence force Australian defence force to serve during World War Two in England and that's, yep. that's another part of our history the, yeah. the RAAF's history. Yes and uh, there were more losses in the Australian Air Force and in World War Two than most of the other services. Yeah, especially given the size of our, our, mm. our country. You mentioned 76 Squadron and you had to fly a Sabre. That would have been an interesting experience, going backwards. That was lovely. <laughs> a lot of people wondered how I got it, but uh, I was actually in a ground job in the uh, in 81 wing and uh, the OC at the time was Group Captain Conroy. And I just saw a picture of it one day and I, I went into his office and I said... What's the go with the sabre? And he said, "What? Why?" I said, oh, "I wouldn't mind having a go." He picked up the phone and he rang Group Captain Doug Riding, who was um, flying it at the time. The conversation went, "Yep, yep, yeah, I got frauls here. Yeah, no, he's done a flying supervisor's course. Okay, no worries. Click, you're in. That easy. That was it. And I went down and did my uh, endorsement training." with uh, Group Captain Riding and uh, flew the aeroplane for a couple of years uh, as a demonstration pilot. So do you feel like you were born out of the, out of time and you should have been born when they were our main <laughs> fighting force? Well, you know, I, I've flown a number of uh, World War II aeroplanes. I've flown the Kitty Hawk, I've flown the Sea, Hawk, uh, the sea Fury, wow. the, the Avenger. Um, so I've flown a lot of those aeroplanes and I really, really love them. They're, they're just wonderful things. Fly so apart are. from the fact that the Mirage or the F-35 is faster than the Sabre and has more weapons than the Sabre and can go further than the Sabre, how exciting is the Sabre compared to it? Well, when you consider, well, like the F-35, first flights, first solo, <laughs> you get in it and away you go. Pretty exciting, yeah. you know, to yeah. be let loose in something like that, particularly something as valuable as the uh, as a, you know, RAF Museum Sabre. You retire in 1997? And you go to Saudi Arabia. <coughs> yep. Why did you retire? Did you, and then why did you go to Saudi Arabia? Uh, at the time, they were offering huge wages, tax-free, and I looked at my prospects of where I would be within the Air Force and what my retirement uh, nest egg would look like. Yep. I decided to retire from the Air or join the Reserves and uh, go to Saudi. Uh, initially, I was looking to do two years and stayed for five. What was it like living in Saudi Arabia? Unexpectedly very good. It really Give me was. some examples of why it was very good. <clears throat> well, the money for a start. <laughs> yeah, okay. Other than the money. Yeah. Well, I found, uh, unlike what most people would expect in Saudi Arabia, the people were pretty much normal. You know, the husband and wife had a mortgage. Uh, you know, they were both working. They had they had a lot more children than Australians do, but that was their main concern. Yeah. Uh, they were very family-oriented. I found them to be very, very courteous. How fulfilling has 2002 <clears throat> to 2018 been in the Reserve Air Force? 
Oh, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Well, I was instructing on the Hawk. You know, I flew the Hawk in Saudi Arabia, so I came home with 800 hours on the on the Hawk. You know, fell into a reserve job in 76 Squadron, and I'd been the CEO of 76 Squadron, so it was like a homecoming for me. Yeah, and I always wanted to fly. I just wanted to fly, and I, I really liked instructing. So mm. for me, those 16-odd uh, years were just wonderful for me. Phil, I'd like to know finally, how important has your time in the RAAF, not reserved but proper, been and why? I managed to have 499 ADF students, so I think I contributed to capability. As far as importance to me, I achieved my dream. I milked it for all it was worth. <laughs> yeah. So. Last question. Did you keep your model aeroplanes? I still have some, yes, um, but I gave a lot away. Phil, thank you for your contribution to the RAAF's history. No thank worries. you for your contribution to Australia. And it's been a real honour to talk to you today. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.